0: Welcome everyone to the Guardians of the Flame podcast. Just before we go right into the interview today, I just wanted to give a bit of an introduction to uh, what is a fascinating conversation with Padre It's, I guess you could say that the interview is in two parts. The first part really deals with uh, his work as a poet and as a peacemaker in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Uh, He's lived here since 2003, uh, so for the last 15 years, Podrig in lots of different forms has been uh, working at this in a in a space where we have ethnic and religious conflict that certainly spans the last fifty years, if not the last four hundred years, um, if not the last eight hundred years, depending on where you want to start your history. Uh, and so uh, the first half of the of the conversation is fascinating. We hear some poetry from Podrig and we hear some uh, some. Kind of just anecdotal stories of of what his work has involved. The second half of the podcast, uh, we talk about what it was like for Podrick to be a gay man in a largely predominantly evangelical mission agency. Uh, it's Youth of the Mission. Some of you will know that organization. It's actually who I work with. Youth of the Mission is an organization I love. Um, it's given me a lot of freedom over the years to pursue a passion for peacemaking and reconciliation, and it also. A big part of it has been, a big part of the kind of the DNA of YWM has been about reaching those on the margins and, and being, a, being spaces of hospitality for people who often are not included, sometimes even in mainstream churches. So YWM has given a lot of freedom to me, and it was a home for Padraig for many years. Alongside that, however, was the reality that as a gay person, he found life very difficult to be and Youth with a Mission. And I guess I wanted to do a podcast where we actually deal with that issue head on. Uh, because it's all very well to talk about peacemaking uh, when it's kind of generalities of far off people. But when you're grounded in the lives of real human beings who are affected by our theology and our practice, it becomes another thing altogether. So I wanted to do a podcast not to be sensationalist and not to try to start spark controversy or dissension, but to actually hear the story of a a person whose voice actually Christians often don't want to listen to. Um, And so, uh, now for some of you, you're not necessarily Christian, and you might think this is a bizarre, uh, why do you even need to have this conversation? Well, I suppose it comes down to the whole premise of our documentary film, which is that religion can be something that warms or it can be something that burns. And I think the way we practice and talk about sexuality and identity... The way we, uh, at times, demonize, scapegoat um, people in the LGBT community, we very much allow our faith and our religion to burn instead of warm. And so, we wanted—I wanted to create a space in this podcast to um, to hear the real story of a a brilliant person and someone whose faith is profound and deep. Um, and uh, and I think listening to his. A journey. I think we, everyone, whatever, wherever you are in your, in your journey as a, uh, as a human and wherever you are in your sexuality, there's a lot to be learned from listening to Podrick. And uh, I'm so ap- uh, appreciative of him uh, and the time he gave us today to, to interview him and talk to him. Uh, okay, so I hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, old friend, Padraig O'Tuma, who's a poet, a theologian. Uh, he's the leader of the Karimila community, which is a, a very well-known uh, faith-based reconciliation community in the north of Ireland here, uh, but its members would probably come from around the world, I imagine. Um, so, And I'm sitting in Padraig's great little apartment here in North Belfast. So thanks for letting me come and invade your house, Padraig.
1: You're very welcome, Johnny. It's nice to see you. So, uh,
0: I imagine a lot of the, you listening will have f- heard of Padraig. You might've heard his voice on, uh, podcasts or talks and you might've read his, read some of his work. Um, I first met Padraig, first got a phone call from him about 2002. It was about three thirty in the afternoon and I said, hello. And he said, did I, sorry, did I just wake you up? <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> perpetually sound <was>, <laughs> half asleep <John. laughs> and, uh, soon realized that, uh, Podrick thought I was asleep at three in the afternoon which actually is not couldn't it wasn't beyond the realms of possibility (laughs) um uh, we have a mutual friend called Erin Pickersgill and her husband David was listening to one of these podcasts last week and said Johnny always sounds like he's smiling and asleep at the same time Uh, David speaks (laughs) the truth (laughs) so uh yeah. So, Patrick, let's start with, uh, you You actually appear in the, the film, Guardians of the Flame, that we've produced. Um, There's a short interview with you as one of the kind of commentators looking at this issue of religion and religion that can be both toxic and healing. Um, what's been, what kind of got you into the work of reconciliation? What, what's the, what are some of the motivating things that have brought you to be working as a peacemaker in Northern Ireland?
1: Um, I can look back in my life and see that I was always interested in difference. Um, I probably always knew that I was a bit different and so therefore was um, invested in opportunities where people of difference were given um, a platform or having the opportunity for their voice to be amplified. And so that was of interest to me from a very young age. I always loved languages and loved learning how to say different things in different languages. I already had Irish and English and then French and sign language came later on. And so for me, interpretation, translation, speaking across um, linguistic divides and speaking then across ideological divides, learning to meet somebody who was different. I remember being very excited when I met um, English people for the first time, because growing up in Cork, you hear about England a lot, like we speak their language, which always confused me as a child while we spoke their language and not our own more regularly. And so having the opportunity to meet somebody gave a vehicle for curiosity. And I think all of those small aspects of my childhood, which possibly made me a a strange child, um, contributed to making me somebody who in adulthood was very interested in meeting people who came from different religious or political or ideological backgrounds. So when an opportunity to move north came, I um, took it with great interest. And then in the last
0: um, five or ten years, really, you've been working uh, with the Carmilla community. How long How long have you been the director there?
1: So it'll be coming up in five years next year that I've been leading it. Yeah. And
0: so what, what has your work both there and outside? You do a lot of freelance work as well. What What do you do? What have you been doing?
1: Um, well, for before I became leader of Carmilla for about eight years, I was poet in residence with some of the groups that were coming there. And that meant that when groups would come from communities in Belfast, for instance, that had been separated by a peace wall or separated by murder, separated by great bereavement or hostility between two neighbourhoods, they would be part of a, a lengthy process where they'd meet every week in very, very careful facilitation. And so I was one of the facilitators, but would bring poetry into that and would then Write poetry each week based on the conversation from the week before and use that as a methodology for reframing. In conflict mediation, you're always trying to help groups to tell their own story to themselves first and believe themselves, and then tell their own story in the presence of somebody who who might represent uh, the different side to that story and then hope that each can extend that generosity to each other. And then you look for a way to reframe that story, which isn't about changing it. It isn't about amending it or denying it. It's about placing it in a broader context. And so poetry is a great vehicle for reframing. Um, And so for uh, years, I was part of that um, mediative intervention Mm -hmm. through art of reframing stories that had hitherto been um, seen as mutually exclusive. The whole idea is that people can begin to find a line in a poem where they go, that's about me, and somebody else from another side would go, no, that's about me too. And suddenly they have some simple plain English that um, becomes unexpectedly hospitable Mm. to what might have been seen to be mutually exclusive hostilities.
0: Do you have any anecdotal memories of, of where that happened or...? Um, line.
1: I'm trying to think of ones that I can tell you. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, some yeah, of them yeah. were very private. Yeah, I'm uh, sure. And, and yeah. so some of them were, the people were only in the room because of months of negotiation regarding participation and the privacy. Um, there was one where somebody just made a throwaway line about being from one political community and living in another because she was in a mixed marriage and then. Her husband was murdered and the kindness of strangers to her. She found an extraordinary kindness from her neighbours. And there was a line in it that when she heard it, she started to cry and said, that's just about me. And one of the people with whom she'd had great difficulty said, no, that's about me. Mm. and it was lovely and partly as the poet in those situations you're not entirely sure what it's about yourself it's not Mm. like the poet is the authoritative interpreter of their own work art if it comes from anywhere comes from out with rather than within and so the whole idea when they would say to me which one of us is this about the answer is I don't know Um, where do you find it poetry is there to be interpreted so which is a different form of language interpretation but I think um it's it's linked to my love of language is the fact that poetry um both goes into but also resists final interpretation
0: um so i i always think poetry is actually one of i suppose in many ways is, is maybe your first love in a way or mm. your kind of uh you know sometimes people might think of poetry as a speaker or he's he's the reconciliation guy but i think in many ways your a strong love is is around language and words I always remember, so Padraig and I used to work together for
1: uh,
0: five years, four, five years, and I uh, always remember him saying, you know, words are very important to me, you know, and I was a, we were both in our 20s, I suppose, 30s, early 30s, and uh, and I would say words weren't that important to me, you know, and... Uh, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> we were, it was good to work together, because we, we taught each other about the value of words, or maybe one of us taught the other one <laughs> so uh so um but uh so that's um yeah so uh one of where these where poetry and your work have kind of come together is what you're describing but uh maybe in a more public way uh was a poem that you wrote um Called shaking hands, I think that's the name of the m- name of it, um, and that en- ended up being having quite a lot of resonance, particularly between Peter Robinson and Martin McGuinness, who at the time were the f- first minister of Northern Ireland and the deputy first minister. So, yeah, I won't go into great detail about the structure of Northern Irish politics, but basically we have power sharing in this country. If you're listening from overseas, um, and uh, and the leader of the largest Nationalist or party that most Catholics would support It sits in power with the leader of the the Unionist or Protestant party and and um, so you wrote a poem that kind of had resonance there. Can you just tell us yeah. a little bit about that story and maybe I'd love you to read some of it? If, or if
1: uh, it was um, two thousand um, and twelve, uh, and it was a particular period of time of of tension in a certain way. Um, And it was also a period of time where there was potential. So um, it was the the jubilee celebration of Queen Elizabeth II. And she had made a triumphant and generous visit to the South and was welcomed with great courtesy and goodness. And she spoke in Irish when she started off her address, um, a national address that was televised by the national broadcaster. And it, that was extraordinarily moving, and I think for Irish people, for whom there's memory of the Irish language becoming made illegal, um, to have the representative head of the country that had been behind that policy speak to us in our own language, albeit just a few words. so as a agus is what she said. President and friends, it's the formal beginning of a of a um, of a speech when the president's there, which she was. Um, and that was uh, extraordinarily moving to to see that and hear that. Um, and in the month subsequent to that, Martin McGuinness, who was the deputy first minister here and the leader really of Sinn Féin in the North, it was indicated that Martin McGuinness was open to meeting the Queen and that she was open to meeting him. And so a an event was organised for artists, apparently, at 9am on a Wednesday morning. So I was invited along. I think they invited artists just because they thought they're harmless. And so I went along. I've never been at an arts event that started at 9am on a Wednesday morning. I've been at plenty that went on until 9am in the morning, but never ones that began then. So I turned up and, uh, mostly there was no event really. The event was to be there so that in the sides when the Queen and Martin McGuinness and Michael D Higgins, the new Irish president at that time, he's not new anymore, but he was then, um, all of them were there. And, uh, I suppose I was thinking a lot about shaking hands the whole way through it and what does shaking hands mean and uh, I've been involved in reconciliation work for a long time and regularly see people coming together for community engagements with people who might come from divided communities or people who might come where they've been bereaved or they've been injured themselves or they themselves took part in activities that they now regret or that they now justify still. Um, anyway, I've seen people coming from across divides to meet each other, and you see them shaking hands. So I suppose I spent the whole morning thinking of shaking hands.
0: And it is a—if I can just kind of add to that, like oh, in this country, because of our conflict, um, the two political sides, particularly the representatives. Of the Republican movement, were, have often been regarded as pariahs by the Unionist parties, and so they will often say, "Well, I will talk to this other politician, but I won't shake his hand." You know, yeah. so the the act of shaking hand is like the, you know, I mean, it's like your it would be the greatest indignity to your own community.
1: To, totally, it's, it's a sign of weakness. A, a sign of weakness, and B, a sign of betrayal. That uh, somehow to engage is to be seen to endorse. And that if you were to shake the hands of somebody, it's as if you affirm their political viewpoint. And so um, this poem came from that. Uh, there's a couple of words in Irish just after the title, and that's simply the date um, that this event happened Shaking hands. Because what's the alternative? Because of courage. Because of loved ones lost. Because no more. Because it's a small thing, shaking hands. It happens every day. Because I heard of one man whose hands haven't stopped shaking since a market day in Oma. Because it takes a second to say hate, but it takes longer, much longer, to be a great leader. Because shared space without human touching doesn't amount to much. Because it's tough. Because it has taken so, so long. Because it has taken land and money and languages and barrels and barrels of blood. Because lives have been lost. Because lives have been taken. Because to be bereaved is to be troubled by grief. Because more than two troubled peoples live here. Because I know a woman whose hands haven't been shaken since she was a man. Because shaking a hand is only a part of the start. Because privilege is not to be taken lightly. Because this just might be good. Because who said that this would be easy? Because some people love what you stand for, and for some, if you can, they can. Because solidarity means a common hand. Because a hand is only a hand, so hang on to it, so join your much discussed hands. We need this for one small second, so touch, so lead. <laughs> There was a strange thing that happened after that poem. I got um, phoned up by the BBC World Service to see what I I recited. Mm. So I recited it the evening of the the, the handshake. And then I got a message from Martin McGuinness, who was the one of the hands that was shaking Mm. the Mm. Queen and he shook each other's hand, each considering each other to be a representative of the other and from whom each had grief, I suppose. Um, so he got in touch and said, oh, "I love the poem. Uh, call up and talk about poetry with me." So uh, a strange and co- and confusing connection began. So I saw him regularly enough over the next few years until he died. He'd phone up sometimes, and he'd always start off by saying, "How's Mammy?" <laughs> 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 it's a lovely yeah. uh, way to just kind of start yeah. off by inquiring about how you, how your family yeah. is. Yeah, but. Um, he then, when when Peter Robinson, the the his kind of counterpart as the first minister was retiring, he asked would I handwrite that, to give to Peter Robinson, as a as a handwritten framed gift, um, and I was dying with a flu, like it was one of those flus where I was shaking and shivering and sweating. So I bought three fancy pieces of nice paper, and I had to throw two away because I sweated onto the damn mm. thing so mm. often. Anyway. He gave one of them, the one without Padraig sweat, to Peter Robinson. But the irony is is that he and Peter Robinson had never shaken hands in public, ever. And so he gave a poem about him shaking hands to somebody whose hand he he hadn't shaken, which you can see that as all kinds of things. One of them might be potential, if you want to deliberately choose to go, is there some form of generosity in there that to give a gift, he had put some thought into it, and across a divide where... Skin-to-skin touch would have been seen to have been a um, collusion that would have been too much, perhaps, for each side. He gave a gift as a gesture, and I think gesture, while it's never the final word, can sometimes be a fine first word, and I saw that. Um, between the two of them actually I think they both in the midst of the limitations of their roles sought to make gestures to each other
0: yeah and we certainly uh, we don't live in any less polarized <laughs> Northern now. Ireland or any less polarized world uh, now I mean it feels like uh, everywhere in the world um, and, uh, and many for there could be many reasons but I, social media is one um, discrepancy between classes rich and poor is another I mean we could go on but um, I suppose any way that we can start to build bridges and words and poet, poetry maybe is one of those
1: uh,
0: not-so-intimidating ways that can begin to build some tenuous connections. And um, and you've certainly done that, Padraig, over the years. Um, just hearing you talk about Martin McGuinness there... Uh, just, I wasn't going to ask you about another friend of ours, Father Jerry Reynolds, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago. But I often, you know, Father Jerry was a Catholic priest from the Redemptorist Order, and for the last 20 years of his life, 20, uh, 30 years of his life, he, he worked and was part of the community in Clonard Monastery on the Falls Road, uh, which is a real was a strong area where... Um, During the Troubles would have been, that area would have been associated as, you know, one of the kind of the epicenters of of the conflict. Uh, And and Padre, you went, you were part of really uh, the Clonard uh, community for a a while, and uh, I don't know if you still kind of would go along to Mass there, but I know you and Father Jerry were very close, and when, when he passed away, one of my sadnesses was I always enjoyed introducing other people to him Um, because I loved them to meet. For me, he was just this amazing person. I couldn't believe you could really kind of meet someone like him. He was just very kind and generous. I wonder, could you just tell, tell me some of your reflections about this person that maybe people listening maybe never really heard of or certainly didn't meet?
1: Yeah. Well, He's credited by people who were very involved in the negotiations towards peace. He's credited by them that his work contributed to... The beginning of dialogue across deeply held divides. Um, so he was a gentle man from a farming community in County Limerick, um, big hands, big farming hands that always were used for writing. He was a journalist with the Redemptorists. He joined the Redemptorists young, 17, I'd say, um, and worked for many years in their communications department, writing some of their magazines and writing some of their reflections for Sunday homilies, etc. And then around the time he was 50, he moved to Belfast and he was distressed. This was the 80s. He was distressed, of course, at what was happening here. And he, he had a gentle way. At his funeral, one of his confrères, one of the other members of the Redemptorist community said, Jerry Reynolds was a man who always had both feet firmly planted in midair. <laughs> which was a great line because yeah, of yeah, course everybody yeah. was expecting to say on the ground yeah, except yeah. nobody thought Jerry had his feet on the ground. Yeah yeah. <laughs> and it was great because the whole place laughed and anybody who knew him thought god that's so true he was such a dreamer. Yeah. He had a dream that righteousness and peace could kiss and truth and mercy could embrace. And that was a very fine dream because the alternative sometimes is a nightmare and in the midst of a nightmare he held on to the possibility that human encounter engagement, dialogue, discourse, um, people coming to be with each other in as much as they were able, in hospitality, in Eucharist, in whatever way we could, coming together to be with each other. And he just bore witness to that over years, steadily continuing on. And you saw him in every encounter seeing the possibility for a conversation and more Um We went for a walk, I'd say, every six weeks, and it was a nightmare. I'd never schedule anything quickly after a walk because you'd be going for a walk and he'd um, stop somebody walking along the other way if we were on the towpath or walking up um, Cairn Hill or something. He'd stop somebody and he'd go, lovely doggy," and then they'd reply. And then he'd say, where's that accent from? And then he'd very very quickly start talking about Calvin. We got into a long discussion once with two Methodist women on on the towpath. When I was like, I need to go home, <laughs> and I was driving too. Yeah, yeah. And he always called my car your little wagon, and so, uh, and he, ach, he was just a man of great hospitality, and he always kept something alive. For him, one of his heartbeats was poetry too. In the redemptorist prayer, there's a great silence in the morning prayer, five or ten minutes of silence in the midst of the morning office. And he would learn a new poem off by heart every week and would use the um, silence of the morning prayer to try to recite as much of the poem as he could remember back to himself. So you could always say, what's the poem this week? And he'd just launch right into it. Um, And if it was a Tuesday, he'd say, I don't have much of it. But if it was a Friday or Saturday, he'd go, I think I have it now. And then he'd launch into it so he was a great man of kindness and curiosity. Like when I came out to him and told him I was gay, he was like, I don't know too much about this. And then just I saw him navigate a territory that he wasn't familiar with. But what he was familiar with was the courtesy to ask generous questions, kind questions, open questions and to listen and to believe. And um, that was a great um, generosity um, that I saw that it's not like we need to be perfectly versed in everything. I think we do need to exercise the muscle of curiosity and courtesy in the context of the unknown, so that we don't um, alienate what we find to be alien to us. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I met you, Padraig, in my late 20s, you really introduced me to a whole uh, kind of, to just an understanding, not just of Catholic theology, but... uh, the kind of the worldview, the Catholic worldview, the culture of of, of being Catholic, which in many ways is so different um, from uh, my own background, which was whatever you want to call it, evangelical, charismatic. And one of the things that I think I've loved as I've kind of journeyed into knowing more about that kind of Catholic practice and culture is the kind of that vocation of a priest, which I think Father Jerry Reynolds really beautifully embodied in a way that and it may be someone like Eugene Peterson that just recently died from the Protestant side uh, was someone similar who who took the vocation of being a shepherd, someone who actually cares for people very careful very very deeply um, whereas for many, I think in that kind of charismatic world the the leadership in a church or an organization is often there 's a cult of personality and it's it 's all about you, whereas Father Jerry embodied something very beautiful it wasn 't about him you know.
1: Uh, no. I think, th- and I, I, these are two good things, but two different things. There is a great difference between preaching and priesting. Hmm. They're both great things. I like I like people to be good at either or both of them, but they are different. And you see in Jerry that he was a person whose deepest vocation was to priesting, as a verb, and he embodied that, as you say, in small human encounters. People would come up to him all the time um, and just say, oh, can I have a word? And he would just find a way to pass the time. And they might have something distressing to say to him or they might just feel the need for somebody to believe them and endorse them in the small grievances or sadnesses of a day. And he embodied that in a way that you would think this is a fine vocation and I hope that inside and outside of religion that those people whose deepest vocation are to be called um, priests or to be towards priesting can be nurtured in that role. Because I think you find priesting in in every human community, do you know. Sometimes they're ordained and they have a role known as priest. Other times, you know, they're the person who stands behind the counter in the shop. Mm. But everybody knows that this woman is a priest mm. and they seek absolution from her. They seek celebration. They seek some kind of moment of human encounter. And those are often small and passing. I was in in the prison last week there is a nun in there who is in that prison um, most days, every week as a chaplain. And she has done so for decades. And you just saw the ease with which she sat there and the ease of banter with women whose lives are nothing like hers. And the ease of connection and the utter lack of self-pity in her life and the utter lack of shockability in her life too. I'd say she's seen it all, Mm -hmm. as had the women inside and I found myself thinking, hello, priest. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you wrote uh, a couple of years ago a, a book of collects mm-hmm. um, f- kind of for the Karamila community. Which can be, it can be publicly bought. I guess you can go yeah. online and buy it. It's called, what is it called? Daily Prayer. Yeah. Um, can you just tell us a little bit what a collect is um, and maybe, maybe we could read one even. Yeah.
1: So collect is a a term for a particular form of prayer. The word collect is just a posh way of saying collect. It means to gather, to gather in your thoughts. And collect has five folds, if you like. And um, especially if you're Anglican, but also Lutheran and Methodist and Catholic Um, you'll go, oh, I know that form of prayer, because you'll recognize it. The five folds are really simple. The first one addresses God, gives God a name. The second one says something more about God. That's the second fold. The third fold names one request and only one request. And the fourth fold gives a reason. It justifies that request. And usually it justifies it by using some of the language from earlier on. The whole thing folds into itself. And then the fifth fold is a little bird of praise. A little Sometimes that might be an amen or through Christ our Lord, etc. Um, I think the Anglican collect, I know, I'm sure I'm going to forget a little clause of it, but the one almighty God, first fold, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known. Second one. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. That's the that's the third fold there. That's the the naming of the desire. Um and then there's the reason, the fourth one, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. And then the fifth one through Christ our Lord. Amen. I know I left out a line there, but but you can hear in that mm. the kind of elegant form in it. And I suppose I've always loved form in poetry. I love sonnet. I love um, pantoum. I love villanelle. I I love haiku. I I think form is a really interesting thing. And when I read that there's forms in prayer also, and this is an old form, it feels like it really does deserve to be in there with poetic forms of expression that you find in literature. So I have worked with collects really um, for 24, 25 years Um, I love the Stations of the Cross and regularly when I'd make the Stations of the Cross as a daily devotion I'd just recite or make up a collect for each one never write them down but just I'd start to structure the prayers in my mind um, in the form of collect and so I published a few in a book a few years ago and then a publisher asked for a full collection of collects so I wrote some Um, What's the date today?
0: It's the um 27th of November.
1: 27. I was trying to think with the one. I'm trying to find a, a kind of a, a particular example that would work. So here's the collect for the first station of the cross Jesus is condemned to death. God of the accused and the accusing, who made the mouths, the ears, and the hearts of all in conflict, may we turn toward that which must be heard, because there we will hear your voice. Amen. They're simple. They have a very elegant form, and I I love playing with that form. The reason I was asking the date is um, I I think any poet is is usually interested in inheriting form and then changing it or breaking it as part of the conversation with a faithful engagement with form. And the collect that I wrote for today for the Carmelite community, I changed the form of it because it's not addressed to God. It's kind of in conversation with Judas. And I have um, great respect, really, for the way in which we read the story of Judas. Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, one of the final verbs that Matthew uses for Judas is the verb metanoia, repent. The text in Matthew 27 says, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. This was before Jesus of Nazareth was executed. So Judas is one of the first ones to realize, oh, this political enterprise that he was hoping for, this revolution, is not going to happen. And you see that Judas was never interested in money, even though the gospel writers write about him Mm. in a terrible way. He was never interested in money. He had money. threw it back. didn't give a damn. And then he went and ended himself. And so you see, really, that Judas is one of the first discerners of a deeper vocation of Jesus. So here's a collect to him. Judas, sainted scapegoat, when you saw that your friend was condemned, you repented and ended yourself. We pray for all who are on the edges of themselves. We pray that they may not be alone. We pray that they may not betray their deepest dignity because God gathers all in the bows of the beloved. Amen.
0: Amen. Yeah. It's a beautiful, Padraig. Let me just take a few seconds to tell you about one way you can support the work that we're doing. Donating via Patreon.com is a way to directly invest in our work. Alongside this podcast, we're seeking to produce a series of documentary films looking at redemptive stories amid the tragedy of civil wars and ethnic and religious conflicts around the world. This kind of work doesn't tend to bring in the big bucks, can I say. And at the moment, there's just a small production team making this dream become a reality. So we would love it if you would consider going to Patreon.com forward slash Guardians of the Flame and signing up to give a regular donation, which will enable us to produce more content. At our Patreon site, you'll see how you can receive bonus content from the films or podcasts in return for regular donations. We don't take this generosity lightly, and we thank you for listening and being part of this project with us. That brings us to uh, maybe kind of the second half of what I'd like to talk to you about today first, but I, I suppose was really just kind of hearing reflections on on working in the, the sphere of bridge building in an area of conflict like Belfast. And um, But in the documentary we're making, the, the quote we use from Jonathan Sachs, which I always found, I remember reading it When my dad gave me the book years ago, um, just so struck me because it's so real over here. Religion is like fire, and like fire it warms, but it also burns, and we're the guardians of the flame. And um, both in, we have seen in politically and and through the troubles, um, religion has been either passively used or has, you know, uh, religious people have very much actively been involved at times in violence, believing God was on their side. Um, and committing acts that were really in reflection were heinous and and ended lives and, and were terrible. And so religion in that sense became toxic. Um, <clears throat> so you've kind of worked in that sphere of trying to, in some ways, I suppose, uh, defuse Christianity, um, disarm it. Um, But not only have you worked in that sphere, you're also a gay man who for many years worked in a kind of a largely evangelical organization. And and I would say it's the organization that I work with, um, Youth With Mission. And in many ways I think we unwittingly and at times wittingly um, uh, were cruel and heinous in the way we spoke about gay people. and the way we at times victimized them, the way we scapegoated them for all of the world's problems. And and you were in kind of walking that journey for many years and had to kind of navigate it. And I think it's, it's brought in you a kind of a real sensitivity to those who sometimes are minorities and they're not in the majority usually, and they often get blamed for everything. And uh, <laughs> I'd love to, of course, we could talk a lot about all of that. But um, can you kind of... Get, As much as you're comfortable, talk about what was it like for you for those years, if you can sum it up, kind of being a gay man in an organization where it wasn't accepted to be gay, it wasn't okay. Um,
1: Well, first of all, I think it's important to say that Youth With A Mission was merely representative of lots of other um, groups. So it was um, certainly no better. Sometimes it was worse, Um, but sometimes, yeah, it was just the same. So, uh, I mean, I knew I was gay from the time that most people know their sexuality. Do you know, um, friends of mine would say, oh, yeah, you know, when I was kind of 11 or 12, I was never interested in the girls. And then when I was 13. I was like, oh, gosh, do you know, I'm interested in that girl. <laughs> um, and so and that for me, it was clear to me from a young age that I was gay. I didn't have that word. But I also knew very clearly that I needed to learn how to keep a secret and needed to learn how to mimic um, the lads in school in their language or whatever. And so, um, you know, this was in the 80s, and so um, AIDS had only recently become known as AIDS. Previous to that, it was known as Gay-Related Immune Disorder or Disease, I can't remember, grid. And so any time that gay was mentioned, if it ever was mentioned, it was mentioned very pejoratively. Um, I went along to... Um, ecumenical summer camps that were predominantly evangelical and there might be a seminar there about you know curing gay people or the evils of gay people or you know satan's plans for the world through the homosexual agenda you know i sat through all those kinds of seminars and then i came to apply to youth with a mission and i mean it wasn't a surprise to me that there was a question on the application form have you ever been involved with the following and then there were four little deathly tick boxes um alcoholism, drug addiction, occultism, or homosexuality. I mean, now I wonder who came up with those four, (laughs) you know? What about the other ones that were discarded? Anyway, and then there was a few lines to explain if you had ticked any of them. Uh, And so I ticked the homosexuality one and, you know, made some silly reference in the essay that I wrote about my personal faith to say, you know, I struggle with this or... I don't really know what I said. I was 17, for God's sake. So within the first week then, there was an exorcism arranged for me, um, which was petrifying. You know, I had literally, I've always been one who remembers dates. I was 18 and one week in the first exorcism. And that was um, horrific to have a whole bunch of people screaming Jesus in my ear. Uh, I mean that's a very frightening experience That was just the first of three And then When those were deemed to have been Ineffective um, Somebody said oh you know you probably have deeper problems Than the devil I was Like God almighty like, What's worse than having the devil in me um, And that seemed to imply That you're worse than having the devil in you Like if it was just the devil or a demon We could get rid of that with a handy exorcism Whereas there's something intrinsic to you that's um, wrong or sinful. And so it was recommended that I go to reparative therapy. No, which is neither reparative nor therapeutic. That's an important thing to say. Change therapy. It's called all kinds of things. Healing ministry, sometimes it's called. Um, Usually for the benefit of the people who are doing it, not for the ones who are receiving it. Um, And that was much worse, actually, than the performative pantomime of exorcisms. Um, Reparative therapy was invasive, insidious, toxic, ill-informed and unaccountable. None of which now, I think, fall within an understanding of Christian integrity. Um, Integrity shouldn't be frightened of accountability. And this form was utterly unaccountable to fields of psychology, to fields of learning, to fields of insight, to fields of feedback to fields of any kind of supervision so in there and in the wider community I suppose that I was in in Youth of the Mission I was surrounded by people that I loved and who loved me and who thought hateful things about gay people and I regularly heard things about how the gay agenda was out to wreck the world and I heard people make put homosexuality or gay people in the same sentences as other things that they wished to project all the evils of the world onto. Um, So you got used to hearing yourself spoken about by people who didn't think that somebody, the likes of whom they were speaking about, was in the room to hear themselves being spoken about. Um, And that's a very interesting... I can now reflect on that and think that's a very interesting way in which to be informed. Um, It's a very interesting way within which you might realise somebody who I love deeply has distasteful opinions about me, but that doesn't mean that finally all of our relationship will be determined by that. So they're with... Safety ensuing safety um I suppose I learned a lot during that time, but mostly at the time I was just frightened um, and the reparative therapist um I uh, purported to be an oth- an authority on um both Christianity and psychology, neither of which I felt like i, ha- I was much of an authority on you know I grew up in a I think in a family who valued um intelligence very highly neither of my parents got to finish school as teenagers and so they always put both of us or put all six of us put pressure on all six of us to learn and so I have great interest in in, in education and also I grew up in a very submissive way toward the authority of the church and so anybody who came across like they were an authority I, my my beginning posture was to think about acquiescing rather than thinking that who who on earth am I to disagree, you know. Anyway, after a, a few years, this uh, therapist had, he used to always ask me these really invasive questions about whether I found the women that I knew arousing. And I found that really distasteful. I thought, I don't think that's for a Christian, but I didn't know enough to disagree with him. I was really very frightened. Anyway, he kept on having this I think, really a discomforting way of speaking to me erotically, which I found to be misogynist. And it was like he was schooling me in the ways of being predatory upon women. Not that he wanted me to actually be predatory, but imaginatively predatory upon women. What do you like about their body? What part of their body interests you? Those kinds of questions, which I just thought, whatever this is supposed to be, this isn't it. Anyway, one time I said to him, and I knew I'd wanted to say it to him and I'd built up the courage over a few months. I'd said to him, I don't even want to want to have the kind of sex you're talking about. And he said, do you know what your problem is, Podrig?" And he sounded really annoyed. He goes, your problem is language. And unbeknownst to me, we were, on now, my, we were now on my territory because I spoke Irish, of course, and English and French. And I was conversant in sign language. And while I don't consider myself to be any kind of a linguistic expert, I love language, and I've been writing poetry since I was eleven and so language is my um indigenous place of belonging and unbeknownst to me, there was power that even I didn't know I had and He said, "Your problem is language because you just use the verb "have," you said." You're not sure you want to have the kind of sex. And he goes, have is a selfish verb. You should want to give sex to a woman, not have it. And I remember thinking, that is such idiocy. That was the exorcism. The devil was gone. Everything fell apart. The house of cards that he had been building, that was neither theologically nor therapeutically adequate, collapsed. And I got up and left, got on the number 16 bus, went back up to the Y1 base in North Belfast, North Dublin, could tell nobody, I had nobody I could tell. And I was alive with a deep sense of potential to think my intelligence has woken up. And that did not mean that I was leaving God behind, but I was leaving stupidity behind and suddenly the world became more open, more interesting, and curiosity became a religious virtue. And I thought, I need to learn, I need to read people. And I knew I can tell nobody. And I do really point to that as one of the conversions of my life. I do think life is a series of conversions, hopefully deeper and deeper into the household of God and that certainly was one of the conversions and it was petrifying but it was the kind of fear that was enlivening rather than enslaving and everything began to open up from there Mm. so the first person that I needed to have these conversations with was me
0: thanks Patrick for sharing that i I, um, I remember talking to a, a gay friend of mine about an idea I had to run a a gathering a conference where we um, where we discuss uh, uh, the theology uh, in, in that we see in scripture about sexuality and um, you know even talk about gay people and and, uh, and my friend who was gay said, "Well you need to have gay people doing the talking." Um, because he said, you've always, it's always been straight people doing the talking, you know. And um, and for me, I was kind of initially, I was like, well, I don't need to. I can, you know, we we have all have a brain. But I feel like just in kind of listening to you there, uh, there is something very holy about listening to someone's story. Um, and it's their story, and uh, it's very important. And uh, I kind of, if this podcast is worth anything, I think it's is is giving the opportunity for people to tell a story, you know, and to give a voice to uh, people who often are not heard, you know. And, and still, sadly, in many evangelical forums, um, gay, po- gay people's voices are not heard. The, the voices of trans people, of bisexual, lesbian people are not heard. Um, and But we want to talk all day about that issue, but we're, we're kind of reluctant yeah. to actually listen to the actual people.
1: I've gotten very used to over the years being spoken about but not with and the recognition that if I do wish to be spoken with that I usually need to demonstrate ten times the graciousness in order to be considered fractionally as worthy to be a participant so that I need to put up with all kinds of insults. And I never return insults. I'm not interested in insulting people. I'm not interested in implying that people's marriages are not worthy or that people should divorce or... Um, You know, I would never say the kind of things to straight couples, the likes of which they say to me, but yet I'm told that I've got the agenda. Mm, (laughs) Um, mm. I'm used to that. I'm mostly Mm. used to it. It hurts sometimes, but most of the time you just think, oh, well, if I want to be involved in the, the public engagement of language with integrity, with deep theological information, I've done two degrees in theology, I'm on my third, and it's important for... Um, me to be known that in the midst of having a personal story, I also have a damn fine intelligence. Mm. And Mm. I think both are important in the engagement of this. And we need to be muscular in our capacity to use gracious, plain words in public. And I am unconvinced by words that only seek to preserve the power of the already powerful. Mm. And they seek to disenfranchise, even through kind of a weak hospitality mm. the already disenfranchised mm. um.
0: yeah it it, it it strikes me and i've seen it more and more even recently that you know if you're straight you know you there is a degree of you're in the majority for a start before you get out of the gate you're you're in the majority um and and the reality is most of your life you haven't had to deal with bullying uh things that Margin people on the margins have to. Uh, you're used to being in power, and so when anyone kind of raises their voice, even to question this status quo, the 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 people in power are greatly threatened by it. And so you get this this sense of the the radical gay agenda, which, in many cases, when I hear that, when people say that to me, I I, I just think about the the scared eighteen year old who maybe was talking to me recently about feelings that they were having for people, uh, for other guys, and how afraid they were for, about that. And I don't think radical gay agenda. Yeah. I think of poor uh, person in, a, in an angry, mean world that is about to eat him up, yeah. and who's going to stand up for him.
1: And I also think in that context of a powerful practice of religion that is not being publicly accountable about the practice of its power. And if you look at the words of Jesus of Nazareth across the four Gospels, some of the groupings that he maintained his harshest words for were those who were in power and who were refusing to take account of their power and to be accountable for their practice of their power. So I think the Gospels have a lot to say about um, the addiction to power about the determination not to acknowledge the power you have and the determination to protect power at any cost, Mm. even at the cost of betraying the integrity you say you have. Mm. So I have been used to being lied about in public by people who wish to say that they are the proclaimers of the truth. Mm. And I'm not interested in lying about them, but I find it ironic that sometimes in the name of virtue, people have said very, very unvirtuous things about LGBT people. And similarly, then, when I hear people who say, oh, you know, Christians are a new persecuted um, group. no, they're not talking about places in the world where Christians are actually being killed or fired. Um, They're talking about themselves here in Ireland or the UK or America. And I think accountability is not tantamount to persecution. I know a little bit what persecution is like. I know what it's like to go go through public exorcisms, to go through therapies that that caused and still impact on it deep and petrifying sense of shame in yourself. I know what it's like to lose work. I know what it's like to have to move home because of feeling deeply afraid, uh, because of people knowing my sexuality. And that's minor. Those are really, really minor things. Uh, Accountability (laughs) is not that. Accountability is just being asked to stand up and bear witness to the truth that you claim you have in your heart and to do so in a way where you're not alienating, humiliating or scapegoating another person, that's the gospel. Mm. And so I welcome the opportunities for churches to be challenged. Um, I'm in the church Mm. and I am also told that I'm not, Mm. even though I wish to be. And I feel like this is an act of God bringing gospel to us for the public accountability of Christian voices today to have to bear witness and just because Christian voices have done terrible things to LGBT people, that doesn't mean that they're finally judged as terrible. I know people who have um, really distasteful views about me and they do great things um, in their parishes, in their churches. And I know, and this is the witness of Carmela, that the first thing that I'm called to is an integrity of self, to not scapegoat others in the name of having been scapegoated myself. So I'm always interested in looking at, well, where can I change? Where can I be open to thinking my language needs to improve or my understanding needs to be more gracious? Mm.
0: Yeah, well, Yeah, I, I read um, recently something Richard Rohr wrote. Uh, he said, I believe that truth is more likely to be found at the bottom and the edges of things than at the top or centre. The top or centre has too much to prove and too much to protect. Um, and it does seem that protect... Can actually bizarrely be a quite a negative word in some ways because we often protection means guardedness, defensiveness, which you know the the motivation is good, you want to protect something, but unwittingly you by protecting by defending you keep out what often is a gift mm-hmm. and and I've seen that of course not just in in the community I work with, but really among Christians everywhere. Um, we want to protect our faith, defenders of the faith, but unwittingly, if we're not careful, unwittingly we keep out
1: those who could be a real
0: gift to us.
1: Mm. And um, and this is where my interest in language comes in, because to defend or to protect, and they're lovely words, except when you think to defend or protect requires an attacker. Mm. And if you if one sees one's role as to defend something, well then it's just taken for granted that you need to have a person in the role or caricature of attacker. And if there isn't one, well then you'll find one. And so I suppose I think that if there is anybody who defends faith, it's God. And our call as people is to respond to God, um, who is perfectly capable of defending God's self. Mm -hmm. Uh, The creator of the universe does not need me um, as some kind of um, defender. I, I think what we see through the Gospels is that power is revealed through vulnerability and the capacity to let the war be ravaged upon your own body, if needs be, before you ravage a war on anybody else's. And that's, I think, where we find the crucified, tortured, abandoned and yet living one. And we find that Christ moment in that kind of practice of power, which is very disarming. And that's the whole point. Mm.
0: You're um, very good. I mean, like you said, you've studied theology, um, you've read, uh, you've also written. Um, I think one of the areas that you really excel in is where you bring to life the Gospels, Uh, and not in in a lot of areas, but uh, particularly um, when we talk about uh, LGBT people and, and our understanding of uh, what the Bible might or not might not be saying, I think what you have to say is very, you know, is is brilliant. Often you bring bring it to life in a way that's often missed if you just read the black and white. Can you what, what's what would be a kind of a a, a part of a, the gospel that you just kind of turn to when you kind of think about um, the issue of LGBT people in the world and mm. um, how God sees them and how uh, they should be seen.
1: Um, so there's the so-called clobber texts, you know, the six or seven passages that are used to um, engage uh, that are, you know, the word kadish is used in Hebrew and arsenokotai is used in Greek. And those words then are used to be translated as homosexuals in since about the 18th century when that word homosexual was invented um, or came into being. Those are really inappropriate translations. They're simply inaccurate. Um, arsino that the line that you find in the Greek is a very new word, really. Um, you find in some of the lists of sins, you find, you know, you thieves, you slanders, you arsino you molesters. Arsino was was a well-to-do, married, Greek-speaking man who had male slaves, boys, who he'd castrate in order to rape them, and he'd have them castrated so that they could never have the possibility of enacting revenge upon him. Hence, molesters is the word after Arsenal I'm perfectly fine with Arsenal Kotai being on a list of sins. What I'm not perfectly fine with is the utterly inappropriate translation of that since the 1800s as homosexuals. That is just inaccurate. So, uh, similarly, when it comes to the Sodom and Gomorrah story, when you read the story of Sodom, you see that these visitors come to the town of Sodom. Lot welcomes them customarily as 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 was proper. The townspeople, like some reenaction of Abu Ghraib, come out to have um to reject the presence of these visitors and they wish to reject them by raping them and You find that in all kinds of situations of masculinist gatherings that people use male rape as a way of doing that. Anyway, Lot offers his virgin daughters and the townsmen don't want the virgin daughters. So, you know, the family leave. Lot's wife is turned into a preservative as she turns around (laughs) to accuse God for Mm -hmm. God's sulfurous actions. And then um, they go into the mountains and it's said that Lot's daughters got him drunk. Apparently they had time to stop in an off-license along the way and pick up some wine. Lot's daughters got him drunk. And from one of them, and they had sex with him, from one of them came the Moabites. And then I forget who the other one was, the Canaanites. I don't think that's how the Moabites tell the story of their origins. So if you want to take that text and use it as some kind of way of enacting a moral approach to the world, I want to know where does the morality begin and end in that text? When we see instances over and over evidenced that Hitherto heterosexual men will use male rape as a way of enacting dominance and power of people they wish to subjugate. You see people being reduced to their most animal of selves. In fact, it's unfair to animals (laughs) to (laughs) call this most animal. It's unfortunately the most human of ourselves because humans seem to be the ones who are the most cruel to ourselves. You see human beings being reduced to themselves in the worst form of that in prisons, in encampments and in torture chambers the world over, much of which is often sexual for the purpose of seemingly reducing a man to being just like a woman. Misogyny is the problem there, not homosexuality. And that's an uncomfortable thing for us to think about. So these two, one's a kind of an epistolary reference to Arseneu and one's a Hebrew Bible reference to Sodom. Those There's accuracies regarding those and people often say, oh Jesus didn't say anything about Gay people. And some people would say that, Matthew 19, when Jesus is being asked about divorce, can a man divorce his wife, and if he does divorce his wife, to whom will he be married in the afterlife? Uh, um Jesus does reply with a reference that quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He chooses interesting things. You see Jesus the theologian and probably Jesus the Pharisee in Matthew's Gospel. I think it's arguable that Matthew portrays Jesus as a Pharisee who were lay Mm. people, loved by the people, the champions of the poor, Mm. the Pharisees. We do a great disservice to Pharisees Mm. to think that everybody just thought that they were tantamount to hypocrites. And so you see Jesus's theological and psychological sophistication when he's being engaged in this trap. People who don't believe in the afterlife asking about the afterlife. Um, they don't give a damn. They just want mm. to trap him mm. and to see, is he theologically adept, which he is. And interestingly, they're asking a question about, can a man divorce his wife? And what's fascinating is that a man could divorce his wife, but a woman couldn't, A wife couldn't divorce her husband. Um, and so divorce was a one-way street. And interestingly, Jesus responds with two quotes, one from each of the accounts in Hebrew Bible of creation. And from the first, he chooses the one that says, male and female, he made them equal. And from the second, he responds with something where he says, and for this reason, you leave one authority, i.e. your parents, and you create together a new authority. And so in being asked a question that is about male privilege, Jesus responds with a question that's laced with equality. And I think that's a really interesting way of um, theological and psychological sophistication that you see in Jesus in being asked traps and being asked trapped questions. In Luke, you see again another trap. A teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a lovely abstract question. Hmm. Um, And usually when people are talking about the hereafter, they're really talking about the here, but just disguising that. And so Jesus says, well... Uh, You know the law. How do you read it? Which is a great theological question. You know the law, um, which is about uh, uh, reading the text and being accurate in the text. And how do you read it? That's about the lenses you apply when it comes to the text. You're hermeneutic if you want to speak theologically or in, in a literary sense. And then so this lawyer is trapped into answering his own trap question. And he goes, oh, whatever, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your mind, your strength, and, you know, your neighbor's yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, well done. And then Luke, the genius, gets to the heart of the question and says, but the lawyer was anxious to justify himself. So suddenly we go, here is the confused and complicated heart of it all being revealed. This is all about the lawyer. And he goes, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, which is f- a fairly boring story, really. It's a fairly ordinary, boring story. Uh, the unexpected person is nice to the person who's suffering. Lovely. And Jesus says at the end of it, go do likewise to the, to the listeners. And I think to, uh, th- we do a disservice if we think the only interpretation of that is to um, be good to people, you know, that mm. you see along the way. I think the real power question is, from whom are you willing to accept help? Because what would it have been like in this little parable when this person who'd been beaten up woke up in that inn and said, how did I get here? (laughs) Well, the Samaritan brought you. And that's an extraordinary thing. The Samaritan took his life into his own hands, perhaps, by engaging in this. And so we see great virtue in the person from whom little virtue was expected. And I think that gets to the heart of our understandings about virtue and power. So the Gospels, I think, are replete with ways within which we can reflect and where none of us feel like Jesus is on our side, where we all feel like to be a Christian is a verb that you practice every day, that you examine the ways within which you Pay attention to your language, pay attention to your power, pay attention to the actions that you do that create life or destroy life for another person. And that is an extraordinary vocation for all of us to be called into together. Mm.
0: Um, I've heard you talk about the... The demoniac, the Garcene demoniac. How do you kind of see that? How do you see yes. that story?
1: I wrote my masters on him. Oh, uh, wow. I wrote my masters on the three most marginalized characters of Mark's gospel and most marginalized being the ones to whom um, Mark or the writers of Mark give the most um, literary attention, where the descriptions are the longest. So this character, whose name we don't know, is on the other side of the sea. Jesus has crossed the sea and calmed the sea down. He told the sea to be muzzled as he was going across. That's the word used in Greek. It's poorly translated as um, quiet or silent. Jesus says, be muzzled which makes you think of a rabid dog. Anyway, that's just a little bit of linguistic artistry from Mark's Gospel. Jesus gets there and it says, There was a man living in the tomb all night and all day. He howled himself with tombs and that the locals had tied him up and chained him up. But even the ropes and the chains and the fetters he wrenched apart and he howled and he gashed himself with stones. And so then he goes up to Jesus and says to Jesus, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. It's a little bit of irony almost. He's saying to God, because he's son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He's confused. Jesus says this extraordinary thing, what is your name? And he says, my name is Legion, for we are many And you see, again, the artistry of language here in Mark, my, singular, we, many, legion, a word for a Roman garrison, who were there in that region. And uh, Ched Myers has done some great research on this and noted that the um, Roman legion that were stationed in that region of the Gennesaret, um, they all marched under a standard, you know, they had a big flag that they marched under a big, and that they marched under a standard of the swine. And so there's a political reading of this that's really important. So Jesus has, he keeps on begging Jesus. Um, You know, the demons are begging not to be sent into the sea, because that was seen to be the kind of gateway to the underworld, to be sent into the pigs, and so they do. And then you, you have this situation where the people looking after the swineherds go and tell the townspeople and the townspeople arrive. I mean, it's all happening like it's in a cartoon, you know. They go, they come back. These were distances of some miles. And so it wasn't happening like that, you know. Um, So the people arrive and it says, and they saw the man clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Mm. And this opens up a possibility of a new interpretation here. Because I suppose the understanding that we've been given in the narrative up until then is that the man was chained up because he was howling and distressed. And you see that their fear is about seeing this man restored, which makes you think maybe he was howling because he was chained up. He was their chosen scapegoat. He was the one in the village upon whom they had decided to pile their deepest hatreds. Who tied him up? Were they gentle? Who threw food at him? Were they gentle? What of the underbelly of a community's hostility did he know? And how dangerous is it when the person who you have up until now treated like a devil has the power of speech back? They are their own selves. They have all kinds of information that you don't want to get out. That's called accountability. The man begs Jesus to go with him. There's eight uses of the verb beg in the Gospel of Mark. I think four of them are in this short text in Mark. There's eight uses and Jesus acquiesces to seven of them. There's only once in the entirety of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus refuses when he's begged. And this is it. The one that would seem to be the most understandable. The man begs Jesus to take him with him back across the lake. And Jesus says, no, go home to your friends. (laughs) Family, kin. It can be translated in different ways, that word. And, I mean, sure, the man's friends were the pigs and the devils, and his home was the tombs. So he's being asked to go back bearing witness to a dignity that people will find difficult. And I encountered a reading of this text from the theologian James Allison around the time when I was going through a new conversion, really. It was around the time when I was thinking, I need to be much more open with people I love on a wider level about being gay. And I knew that that would be tantamount to me leaving Waiwam because I knew that that would not be tolerated. And I was frightened, and the threat of that was serious. And the serious question about what will I do about what my work is, you know, how will I leave in a way that doesn't seem like i have this great fallen person? And so uh, I was reading that, and it felt very fortuitous, really, to have that reading. And I realized that my call was to find a way to have a rescued dignity for myself, even if nobody else believed it. And it gave me the courage, really, that reading, to make a decision to bring 15 years of time in Wylam to a close, to do that in a way where I wasn't scapegoating other people, and to do that in a way where I also wasn't allowing myself to be scapegoated. For a few years, probably every week, I got a pretty awful letter. (laughs) Um, In fact, some of those continue till today. It's a long time ago now. So I, I get some pretty, people say some pretty terrible things in the name of the gospel, And I still feel like my witness is to be home among my friends, even if my friends were the ones who would have found it to be more comfortable to consider that I had a legion in me Mm. and to bear witness to a dignity that dignifies me and that I think calls all of us, me included, to a deeper sense of community with ourselves.
0: Mm. And I think um, over the years of, you know, I was... uh, Part of uh, youth of the mission when you were there, I was, uh, I was kind of dare say your leader for a, a time. Sure, um, I taught you everything. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we all know who was doing the teaching. You know? you know, you were. I was learning a lot from you in those years. But um, I think uh, you know. I think you've always carried yourself in a way where you know. Obviously, nobody's perfect. But where you have sought not to um, demonize individuals, um, uh, but also to speak truth um, at times when it's uncomfortable, and you and I, and I don't think you've raised your voice in an un—you know what does it say about Jesus? And I saw, you know, a bruised reed he would not break, and you know he like a sheep before his shearers is silent. You know, and 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 I think there's—I wouldn't say you've been silent, but you've you've had a Kindness about the way you've navigated this last decade of your life since leaving um, a period of your life that was undoubtedly har- painful and also harmful at times, hellish, hellish yeah, at yeah. times. Yeah. Um, and,
1: I mean, we're sitting here and you see a wall of love of photographs from the last 25 years of my life up there. And that's filled with people who I met in Wyoming. So I've I've great things to be very thankful for. Yeah. And nobody forced me to stay. You know, yeah. I continued to choose. Um, so I, for me, the question is not blame. Uh, there is a question for me about integrity and a question to say, if, as we rightly have done, we have dismantled ways of thinking that you could technically argue or present in the Bible about the role of women, about about usury, about slavery, about all these things, well, then we should simply apply theological integrity across the board and to be willing to ask the serious questions that the whole Christian project has been about asking from day one. And that, for me, is the thing to bear witness to. I'm uninterested in people feeling scapegoated or spoken of negatively, and I'm uninterested in raising my voice because if there is truth in power that is not undermined by gentleness, mm-hmm. that, for me, is the vocation. Yeah. For and I'm the one who was the site of conversion too. We're all being called together to be converted.
0: Um, thanks, Padraig. Maybe we could just kind of kind of draw it a little bit to a, to an end, um, kind of bringing these kind of two areas, both the political context of Northern Ireland and the reality of of gay people in the world, and Padraig yourself as a gay person, and and where belief is involved in both of these areas and belief is so important and you've got a poem and uh, that i read a very short one the beginning of wisdom in this book uh, a book of poetry that potter published good readings from the book of exile um i i quite liked it it's it's very small it's like four or five lines long i don't know if you want to read that it's very simple um but then we could maybe have a chat a bit about the nature of belief and yeah. How to hold beliefs.
1: Sure. The beginning of wisdom was when I learned the difference between believing in the truth and telling the truth about belief.
0: What do you mean by that? Because belief is such a strong word. word it beliefs is yeah. are so strong.
1: What do you believe in? Um, uh, people talk about people coming to belief and uh, so it's a fascinating word it's a, it's a word that whose meaning has changed a lot i think it's only the last 200 years where in english it has come to really mean an intellectual assent and connection with a series of propositional truths previous to that belief meant a lot about your practice as well that you know um belief meant showing up to weekly church services for instance that's your belief because you you turn up um rather than what you say you believe whether you go or not um and I suppose people, the the question for that I heard a lot was, you know, what do you believe about homosexuality, um, uh, which seems to be a, a, a very disembodied way of speaking about an entire population of people. But then you'd see you'd hear it about other things too. What do you believe about women's leadership? What do you believe about female equality? Do You know, um, and I I became troubled with the idea of belief. And I started to think, what if one of the qualities of true belief was wrapped into the experience of being believed? And I found myself thinking, instead of asking people about their belief, I'd be interested in asking people about a time when they felt believed and a time when they felt not believed. And what happens there? And what kind of underbellies do we expose when we speak like that? And what are the stories people tell if they tell you, if it's safe enough, and if you've done the work to be trustable, um, where you hear something about a quality of belief. And in the name of abstract belief, what are the truths about that? What are the things that have happened to people? I know people who were told, oh, don't go and study economics or literature because, you know, There's more important things to do, even though possibly they had the deepest vocation towards economics or literature. Those were considered to be secular things. So belief limited them. Um, And it's true also that the belief has also opened up horizons of dignity and possibility for other people. So there's all kinds of stories that are true about belief that need to be believed. But I was interested in finding a way to trouble the word belief where we are being asked to consider our disposition towards it, rather than thinking, oh yeah, I've got it in the bag, you know, I know what I believe and I know what everybody should believe. Yeah, all tidied and dusted. The question really is how to make other people believe what I believe. That, That doesn't seem open enough or curious enough or risky enough for me. And I think in the Gospel project, you see God becoming incarnate in the particularity of an individual embodied person. And incarnation is such an extraordinary experiment and risk that you see at the heart of the Christian project. And you see that universality is never threatened by particularity. And I'm interested in the particularity of each individual life and how it is that the posture of belief toward a person might bring us into the possibility of encountering incarnation. Mm. And I suppose as we've You can talked. see why I write poetry, because you can yeah. put all that much slower yeah. <laughs> that yeah. rather than whittering on. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. No, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. So we we can see in your story, um, and both in the story of, of Ireland, really, where religion's been like fire and it's, it's burned. Um, uh, but also, surely religion can warm. Yeah. And how do you see that as communities you know many people listen to this some may not have a faith in god or uh but i'd say quite a good chunk of you listening uh would have a a faith of of sorts and for for people who hold faith how do we hold our faith in a way that warms um uh, how do we hold belief in a way that is that warms
1: um well i don't know i suppose i'm interested in people's prayer and what their prayer as a person and their prayer as a community is like, and how their prayer opens them up to the world rather than closes them off. Because I see in the Gospels a narrative of a person who was profoundly open to the world, and especially profoundly open to the parts of the world that were deemed to be um, tainting, and that Jesus of Nazareth did not seem to be very interested in having his imagination about populations of people limited, by the stories that other populations of people told about other populations of people. Mm. Um, and yet I've heard that over and over again. Oh, you know, don't be associated with the Baptists because, you know, they're not properly Christian or are oh, Catholics Christian, are Charismatics Christian, you know, our, liturgi- our liberals, are our conservatives. All of that is, it's a real failure of the imagination of being a person involved in the religious project. As the religious project is surely about finding a way to push against the borders that we find to be constricting. You see God doing that and entering into the borderland of humanity through incarnation. And I think if we are to follow God, we should be doing the same thing in the questions that we apply to the project of being alive. And so I, in the midst of having been burnt by faith, I have also been deeply nurtured by it. I I couldn't turn away from faith. Um, faith is more important to me now than it ever was because it is sometimes the only thing I can go to that gives me dignity and that's a really important part of sustaining yourself when you continue to hear people saying lies about you I'm right re- I'm used to people lying about me and saying horrible things about me that's okay Do you know there's forgiveness there and that's I'm not interested in holding that against them. I am interested in us having a much more interesting conversation. Mm. And the the capacity to hold that as an imagination about the potential for our encounter comes by being nurtured by the gospel where you see the curiosity of God to find welcome in unexpected places and to find a way to turn hostility into hospitality. All of that is nurtured, really, by the Gospels. So whether from the time that you see Jesus of Nazareth being born to the time that you see him be abducted and executed by state torture, in all of them you see a witness to the creative potential of human encounter. And then following on from that too, that could never be killed. And it's a great joy to be nurtured by that kind of a way. Hmm. That, that will, that's, a, that's a light that will never go out.
0: Patrick, thanks for having this conversation. And I think, uh, sadly, uh, people we don't have enough conversations with people um, who sometimes don't have a voice. And, and I'm, I'm glad you have a voice, <laughs> and it's been a privilege to listen to it, um, not just now but over the years. Um, thanks, Johnny. You're a deep, good friend, and so uh, are you. Uh, I wonder: is there a poem? Um, you'd like to end with that maybe uh
1: sure there's one called creed oh, i had it i, had the it I was going to ask you about that yeah, so, great.
0: Okay. we must have we must have been listening to the holy mm-hmm. spirit
1: there so creed i once was blind but now i can see i once was him but now i'm me I once was cold, but now I'm not. I used to fear hell where the fire is hot. I wanted to be straight, but the thing is I'm queer. I thought I belonged there, but I belong here. "'I once was wrong because I thought I was right. "'I thought that the darkness was the same as the night "'and I thought that the light was consoling and beautiful. "'All it asked was be pure and be right and be dutiful. "'But light can be insipid and daytime can be vacuous "'and no cult is so crude as the cult of the miraculous. "'I thought that walking on the water would be the end of it all.' But addiction to articulation was the start of my fall. I fell into meaninglessness. I fell into sin. I fell into darkness, and I felt caged in. And I fell into the arms of something that was lurking in the corner, in the shadows. And it's been slowly converting my methods and madness into myth and new meaning. My sagas and sadness, given girth and given grieving. And now I believe in the god of the human, the good and the glorious. The generous and moving. I once was blind. Now I'm blinder still. And inside my own night time, I am silent and still.
0: Thank you, Padre Gotuma. Thank you so much.